From time to time, the, the President of the United States hosts these fancy events called state dinners for foreign dignitaries or other very important people. He doesn't do this very often, maybe only once or twice a year, but these are big deals, and they're, bl- they're called black tie events. Now, when I read that, I was thinking, well, what is a black tie event? I mean, I know no- next to nothing about fashion. If you ask my wife, Teresa, she'll tell you the first time she met me, like Alex was wearing baggy clothes from the 1990s that didn't fit him very well, and I had no intention of changing that because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't but thankfully, you know, as I've got to date my wife and we got engaged and married, she helped me with my sense of fashion. It probably couldn't have gotten any worse. But anyway, so I had to look up, what, what is a black tie event? And this fashion website said, dress, the dress code for so, it's a dress code for social functions that start at 6 p.m. and basically translates to, quote, this party is fancy and men should wear tuxedos. So at these fancy state dinners, you'll see, if you were to ever go to one or maybe just look at pictures online, you would see honor guards and color guards in full dress uniform from all branches of the U.S. military. You would see a special motorcade bringing the guest of honor to the White House, the president and the first lady greeting the guest of honor. The last two state dinners were held in honor of the prime president of China. So these are, these are big, important events for big and important people. Now imagine if you were given an invitation to come to one of these state dinners, to come to the White House, and actually be given a seat at the table with the president of the United States. That would be an amazing honor. You'd probably be dressed in your tux or a really fancy dress, probably snapping selfies with you and other very important people there. Uh, Imagine the food you would enjoy. Now imagine the waiter coming up from behind you and saying, and asking you, how would you like your steak prepared? And, and And in a moment of disbelief, you're thinking, oh, I recognize that voice. That's rather odd. And you turn around and standing right in front of you is the president of the United States with a towel around his arm, a pad of paper in his hand, and a pen in in the other hand, waiting to take your order. Now, if that happened, that that would probably be shocking to you. In fact, you would be thinking, well, that's not right. Why is the president pouring my wine, taking my order? He should be up front in a place of honor. But that's exactly what we see Jesus do in this passage tonight. It's a surprising role reversal where Jesus breaks protocol and washes the feet of his disciples in one last act before his death. And in John 13, we see that those who are loved and served by Jesus will in turn love and serve like Jesus. Those who who were served and loved by Jesus will serve and love like Jesus. So this foot washing happens in the final week of Jesus' life during Passover. And during the Passover, the Israelites remembered their great deliverance out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If you know your Bibles, you know that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, thousands of years earlier had enslaved the whole nation of Israel and was slowly killing them. Basically said, if there was any male child that was born, it must be drowned into the Nile. So the nation of Israel didn't have any hope or future apart from divine intervention. 
And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He had no intention of letting the Israelite slaves go. So God had to send plagues and judgments to force Pharaoh's hand, to force him to release the Israelites. And we see purification is a key to preparation for the Passover. John chapter 11, verse 55 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. The Israelites understood that cleansing would be needed before they approached a holy God. Moses, when he drew near to God at the burning bush, he had to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, when he met with his people after rescuing them out of Egypt, he told them that they needed to take two days to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves. The two days were spent washing their clothes, preparing themselves, and then and only then on the third day would the Lord, Yahweh, meet with them. So this is our context, the Passover. And Jesus is hosting a meal for his disciples during this holy week. The disciples were probably seated on these couches that were set up around the table, and they would have been reclining, likely on their left arm on the couch, facing the food, and then their feet would have been pointed outwards around in a circle, their feet pointing outwards. At this point in time, we know that Jesus has established himself as teacher and Lord. But not only that, but also as God himself. He would have said in John earlier, before Abraham was, I am a direct reference to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, the self-existent, self-sustaining God of the universe, the one who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. And it is this God who took on human flesh in Jesus Christ, this God who became what he had never become before by taking on human form. This infinite, eternal, and unchanging God entered the world, our world, a world of space, time, and change. Jesus didn't consider or count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. And so Jesus went around the circle where his disciples were seated for the dinner, and he went to each pair of feet to wash each pair of dirty feet. Now, Jewish society actually valued humility and service, but there were limits. It was, it was supposedly said of, one Jewish rabbi in, sec- in the 2nd century A.D. that this rabbi was so humble he would do anything for others except relinquish his superior position. Seating according to rank was crucial. But the humility of Jesus has no limits. His act of service actually even went beyond just him being a servant. It was actually Jesus posturing himself in a position of submission, taking a lower rank. In the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, there's a young lady who humbles herself before the Lord's anointed, King David. This young lady named Abigail, she bowed her face to the ground and said, 
Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So by offering to wash the feet of David and his, his other people, his servants, Abigail was basically saying, I'm of a lower rank. I'm unworthy. And foot washing was a task reserved for the lowliest servants, the task that no other servant would want to do. It's one thing for the president to serve food, maybe take your order or pour your wine, as shocking as that would be. But it would be another thing if the president shined your shoes or if he washed your car or if he cleaned your bathroom. And that's what Jesus, the king of the universe, God himself is doing in this moment. He is shining shoes and washing cars at this moment. And it's an unconditional act of love that knows no bounds. He knows that in just a few moments, the disciples are going to abandon him and be unfaithful. He knows that Peter will deny him. He knows that Judas will betray him. And yet, what does the scripture say? It says that he loved them until the end. He still washes their feet. Often, our love can be very, very conditional. When we're hurt or we're, we're betrayed, it's easy for us to stop loving people. It's easy for us to love our friends, but not so easy to love those who are unfaithful or even our enemies. But that's what Jesus does when he washes all the feet of his disciples and Judas, the betrayer. And as a side note here, we we see clearly that Judas is a fake, that he's a hypocrite, that he is posing as a disciple but not a true disciple of Christ. And this should probably humble us because... He was one of the inner 12, and yet he wasn't a true disciple. The Bible calls us to be, more, to be eager to make our calling and election sure, to test ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. We also shouldn't be too surprised at Judas. There are people who fall away or fall away from the faith, or walk away from Jesus. And it's a sad and a tragic thing, but it shouldn't shock us because it happened among the 12 disciples, and it happens today. So we see Jesus loved his own, his, all of his disciples, even the betrayer. He loved them until the end. And this is stunning because we know that the disciples, they, at this point, after spending three years with his disciples, the disciples still really don't get it. If you look at the book of Luke, the Passover Supper, the Passover Supper is recorded in Luke chapter 22. And immediately after the record of the Last Supper, the Passover meal, we read something that's surprising, or maybe not too surprising. After the Last Supper, after Jesus is talking about his own death, the disciples argue. They argue about who's the greatest. They're arguing about their position. They're arguing about their rank as Jesus is about to go to the cross and die for them. And even Peter, the, you know, one of the most loyal disciples of Jesus, doesn't really get it. You catch what he said? He told Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. In fact, he is so self-absorbed with his own sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's proper and what's not, he has the nerve to order Jesus around. He first tells Jesus, no. You shall never wash my feet. And then later on, he backpedals a bit and says, well, wash my hands and my head as well. And so as we look at what is taking place at this dinner, we we see the extent of Jesus' love and his humility, his love for the unfaithful, for the betrayer, for the self-absorbed. And friends, that's really you and me. 
If we look at our own hearts, we have not given God the honor and worship that He deserves. We have been unfaithful. We have not loved God with all of our heart. We've betrayed Him and loved other things. And we have not made God our great delight. We are often just so self-absorbed with our own things. And so behold and see the humility and love of Christ as he condescends, as he stoops to the, to the, to the position of a servant in washing the feet of his unworthy disciples. But this also raises a question. What is the big deal about this washing? Why does Jesus insist so strongly In verse 8, he says, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Why does he say that? Well, earlier I mentioned that uh, purification was key to preparation. In the first century, Jews recognized this. But do we? It's not okay that we've been unfaithful. We've betrayed God and we've been self-absorbed. Because God says that the wages of sin is death. We've committed great crimes against a great king, and the stain of our sin has to be cleansed. Jesus has to purify and cleanse us. Otherwise, he says, we can have nothing to do with him. But the act of foot washing, the act of this cleansing, we know that this washing, we know that it doesn't save because all 12 of the disciples were washed, but not all of them were cleansed. Judas was washed, but he wasn't cleansed from his sin. And so this foot washing has a symbolic meaning to it. It it was going to anticipate and look forward to a greater cleansing, a greater act of love and humility. Jesus would take his posture of humility and love one step further. Jesus, during this Passover weekend, would die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The climax of the Passover feast was a reenactment of what happened during the first Passover. During the first Passover, when the nation of Israel was still in Egypt, a spotless lamb without blemish was slaughtered. And the blood of that slaughtered lamb was put over the door of every Israelite house so that the angel of death, as it was coming to bring death and judgment on on Egypt, would see the blood on the Israelite house and then pass over the house. And so every Passover was a remembrance of that great deliverance, that death passed over the nation because of the blood that was on the door. But it also anticipated a greater rescue. The Exodus, the Passover, those were great acts of salvation. But even though Israel was spared from death on that night when the angel of death visited Egypt, death still came to Israel. Ever since Adam, death had the final, has the final say for every human being. The grave still swallows. Sin still reigns. And so Israel, as do we, needed a permanent cleansing, a permanent purification that would take away the disease of death. And death itself, would, it's really just a symptom because the root cause is sin. And the surprise that we see here is that God himself would do that cleansing. And just as Jesus took off his robes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed the feet of each of his disciples, Jesus himself would cleanse, from our, cleanse us from all of our sins. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There are many here today in our culture, in our society, who believe that in order to get to heaven, you just have to have good works. Just make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Or maybe you don't think that. Maybe you just think, well, Jesus died, but I have to contribute something. I've got to throw in my good works also. I've got to add something to it. Well, God's Word teaches us that it is by grace that we are saved. Through faith, this not of ourselves is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Good works are required, but they are the effect of salvation and not the cause. And we must never confuse cause and effect. In fact, if we confuse them, we can get into a whole lot of trouble. Here's, a, here's a, a simple and somewhat silly elementary school example illustrating why it's so important not to confuse cause and effect. The example sentence goes like this. Because it began to rain, Sally ran inside. Because it began to rain, Sally ran inside. Okay, so, so the cause is the rain. The effect is Sally ran inside. Now imagine what would happen if we switched the cause and effect. If we switched this, the two. The sentence would be, because Sally ran inside, it began to rain. Because Sally ran inside, it began to rain. And that, that makes no sense at all. And in the same way, it makes no sense that our sin-stained works would somehow be pleasing to God and earn our own salvation. No, good works are the effect of our salvation, not the cause. And we must never, ever confuse the two. Because there's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the good news is that Jesus is in the business of purification through his death and resurrection. In John 2, we read about an earlier Passover where Jesus cleanses the temple. And it's a symbolic cleansing because the nation of Israel eventually reject Jesus as Messiah. But during that cleansing, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is teaching us that he is the true temple, the true center of worship, and that by dying for the sins of his people and rising again from the dead, he would cleanse all those who belong to him. He would cleanse the church, which then becomes the true temple through our union with Christ because we belong to him. And so in washing the feet of his disciples, we see the humility and love of Jesus. But the cross really does take it to a whole nother level. We really see how far Christ stooped down. It was one thing to, it's one thing to wash the feet, the dirty feet of disciples, but it's another thing for God himself to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does Jesus mean in verse 10, though, when he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet? but is completely clean. What does Jesus mean by that? It can seem kind of puzzling. Well, there is a one-time cleansing. Jesus died on the cross once. We come to faith and trust in that sacrifice. And that's like taking a bath. But there's also ongoing cleansing that has to take place, becoming more and more like Jesus, continual feet washing, so to speak. It's like going to an important dinner party after a long, hard, sweaty day. If you're hot and sweaty, 
long day, you don't just show up to the state dinner. You go back to your hotel room, you take a shower, you get changed. But after you arrive, you don't take another bath. You just maybe wash your hands. And you might wash your hands several times if you maybe eat some messy appetizers or you go to the bathroom, but you don't need to take another bath. You just need to wash your hands. In the same way, we are justified once. We are cleansed from our sins once. We are born again once, but we need to keep coming back to Jesus in order to be cleansed. We need to keep confessing our sins to the one who is faithful and just, who will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are two application takeaways I want us to consider as we look at the significance of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. First, wash frequently. And second, serve humbly. So wash frequently and serve humbly. Wash frequently. Martin Luther wrote, The devil allows no Christian to reach heaven with clean feet all the way. The devil allows no Christian to reach heaven with clean feet all the way. In my pride, in our pride, we can think that my feet are always clean. And we can become complacent and act like we're already in heaven when we're actually on the journey towards the heavenly city with a corrupted heart and walking through a corrupted world. Humility teaches us that there's always more cleansing to be done. That as we walk more and more with Jesus, as our feet more and more need to be cleaned by Jesus, that as we become more like Jesus, we realize the more we need to change to be more like Jesus. And if you do this in your own strength, this could be exhausting. But the whole point of this passage is that Jesus comes to us. He washes our feet, and we find refreshment in him. He does the cleansing. He does the washing. And he does it through his word. So let us be faithful disciples of Christ and sit under his word because Jesus cleanses us and teaches us through his word. So wash frequently, but also serve humbly. In verse 14, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see, those who are loved and served by Jesus will love and serve just like Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, we have received so much grace. We've been given so much love. We have been cleansed so completely that that can't help but change the way we live. We can't help but humble ourselves. John Calvin wrote, We may infer, until a man has learned to yield to his brethren, he does not know if Christ be the master. And the point that Calvin is trying to make that, uh, is that a life of humble service, a life of yielding itself to others, that is the life where Christ is the master. It's not enough simply to say, Jesus is my master. Church, do we yield to our brethren? Do we yield to one another just like our master? Do we wash the feet of fellow disciples just like our master? Church, let us love and serve others as Jesus has loved and served us. Jesus said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you, must be your servant, and whoever will be among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve his life as a ransom for many.
And I thank God that you as a church already do this. The fact that Risen Hope is here six months into our launch is a testimony to the foot washing that happens in this church. So we as a leadership team, we thank God for your faithful and humble service at this church. And if we were to take the time to just recognize God's activity in your lives, we would be here all night. But I, want, I do want to take a moment to highlight one particular family, not to put them on the spot, but simply so that Christ can be honored, the work of Christ in them. And that family is Dave and Patty Heidegrin. They're an example of Christ-like humility. If you, know, if you know Dave and Patty, you know they serve in a multi, multitude of different ways. They lead a community group. Dave leads our parking and facilities team. Patty runs our book nook. And they regularly invite people to their home on Sunday afternoons to have lunch with them. But, that, but what struck me about them was hearing about the way that they volunteer themselves and their community group at church-wide events. They often volunteer for the cleanup duty, for the trash duty, for those tasks that we wouldn't immediately jump to. I know for me, I don't know about you, it would be easy for me to volunteer for, oh, food service? Oh, I'll sign up for that. Or photo booth? Yeah, that's, that's fun. Or some other fun activity? Oh, I'll sign up for that. It's natural for me to want to sign up for something quick and hope I don't get stuck with the trash duty. But the Heidegrins, they don't do it because all the other slots are taken. They do it because they look for opportunities to wash. Look for those opportunities to serve with such Christ-like humility. So we thank God for you guys. Yes, we thank God for you guys. <clears throat> for some of you, maybe this message has raised more questions than answers. And I want to encourage you, you know, as you think about what does it mean that my sins can be cleansed and washed away. What does it mean that I can have assurance that Jesus is my Savior and Lord? The book of John is actually a great place to start. This is where you can see who Jesus is. John wrote this gospel that you might believe in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. I also want you to be aware, if you're still... You have questions. If you're wondering, what, is, what does this all mean? What does it mean for Jesus to wash away my sins? I want you to be aware of the bridge course that is starting up next Wednesday here at the church on March 30th at 6.30 p.m. You can pick up one of these invites in the back. It's an, it's an introduction to the Christian faith for seekers and skeptics and for anyone who wants to brush up on the basics. Anyone can benefit from the bridge course. Dinner is provided. You can simply just go to our website, risenhopechurch.org, and register, or just pick up one of the forms in the back and drop it off here. Imagine yourself back at the White House at the state dinner. We've already talked about how it would be a shock if the president came by your table and took your food order, poured your wine, and and took that role of a servant. It would be an even bigger shock if he shined your shoes or washed your car and took that role of submission. But to top it off, imagine with me for a moment if the president took a bullet to save the life of one of his bodyguards. That would be an unthinkable role reversal. The president laying down his life so that his bodyguard could live. But that's exactly what God did for you. Jesus took a bullet for you when he went to the cross and washed away your sin with his blood and cleanses us day by day through his washing. So if you have not yet trusted in Christ, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And church, let us come to our Savior to, to be washed frequently. And let us consider his example and serve humbly. Let us pray.